Hi, I'm Graham Dargy and welcome to the Viewfinders Photography Podcast. Today I'm talking with landscape, wildlife and nature photographer Guy Edwards. Guy is one of the UK's most popular photographers and photography educators and uh, this conversation is packed with useful information and Guy holds nothing back sharing how he shoots everything from landscapes to frogs to aurora to fungi. Well, before we get to that, let's check in. Uh, we're about halfway through the season of the show and you know in these times where we have to stay home and we can't travel uh, I've been really grateful for the conversations I'm having on the podcast which have taken me all around the world from the wilderness of Sweden with Magnus Lindbom to Canada with Eric Parry, Ethiopia, South Sudan and Chad with Trevor Cole Antarctica and the Arctic with David Merrin last week and today we'll visit the rainforest of Costa Rica courtesy of Guy Edwards. Um, I've been enjoying that. I hope it brings a little bit of a break for you from the Groundhog Day we've all been experiencing lately. For me, earlier this week, I taught a photography foundations class on Zoom, which is always fun. And uh, this last weekend, I was actually able to get out with a camera for some landscape photography. Uh, We have a harbour here in Aberdeen. There's a big seawall at the harbour entrance, and on a windy day, the waves splash right up over the seawall and up onto the lighthouse that's there, and you can get some spectacular shots. Uh, We've had some really windy weather, so when I woke up on Saturday, I could hear the wind, check my phone for the tide times, and there was a high tide at 10 past 8 and a sunrise at about 8am, so I had just enough time to get some breakfast, get my waterproofs, grab my kit and get down to the harbour. Because of the restrictions and the way we've been set up, it's just been really tricky for me to get out with a camera, so the last time I was out shooting landscapes was six months ago. I don't know about you, but landscape photography is one of those things that is just really good for me mentally and emotionally. There's just something about the combination of being out in the fresh air, you're doing something physical, carrying the gear around, you're mentally engaged, thinking about the camera settings, uh, you're being creative, and it's this immersive, full experience for your body and your mind. And for me, I really miss that. So off I went on Saturday morning, and yeah, it was a spur-of-the-moment thing, and I was really up for it. Uh, So I had two shots in mind that I wanted to shoot and I managed to get them both and uh, after about an hour of being blown away and getting covered in sea spray I had the shots, uh, my hand was freezing and uh, I was ready to head home for a coffee but um, it was great to be out, it's just great to be out there so I'll put a link in the show notes to a short video I made while I was there so you can see exactly how I got on and you can see the photos I made while I was there too How about you? Did you manage to shoot this week? I'd love to see what you've been getting up to and if you're taking any inspiration from some of the guests we've been having on the show. Um, So you can connect with me on Instagram at viewfinderspodcast and you can head to view-finders.co.uk where you can find out about what I do and get my free long exposure photography tutorial while you're there. Okay, I must make one final mention for my special event coming up this Monday, the 15th of February. It's Viewfinders Live, an evening with Mark McCall, sponsored by MPB. Mark McCall is one of our best landscape photographers here in Scotland. Mark will give a fantastic presentation about his beautiful photography. There'll be a live Q&A and you could even win a £50 voucher courtesy of the event sponsor, MPB. I'm so looking forward to this. It's been seems like it's been a long time coming now and it's going to be a great night for anyone with an interest in landscape photography. Tickets are available now on Eventbrite for just £10 plus booking fee, bringing it to that strange price of £11.37. And I'll put a link in the show notes where you can get the tickets. The event sponsored by MPB. MPB is a place where you can buy and sell used photography equipment. Buying used is a great way to get the kit you really want and save money at the same time. I've used MPB over the years and I want to thank them for giving me a £50 voucher to give away at Viewfinders Live, an evening with Mark McCall on Monday the 15th of February 2021 at 7.30pm UK on Zoom. Many tickets have been bought so far and it would be fantastic to see you there. I hope you can make it. Okay, time to introduce this week's guest, Guy Edwards, a landscape, nature and wildlife photographer from Dorset, England. Guy's been a professional photographer for 25 years and he's seen the industry go through many changes in that time. A typical year sees him run as many as 35 photography tours around the world from Costa Rica to Bulgaria, Scotland, Iceland, Japan and right on his doorstep in Dorset. The conversation is packed with good stuff like the importance of developing your photography style, Guy's tips and techniques for shooting everything from fungi to frogs astrophotography to aurora borealis 
as well as how he creates depth in landscape photography, a deep dive into his camera kit, the challenges of working in the rainforest of Costa Rica, and much more. Uh, this is a dense and fast-moving episode. I'm sure you're going to take lots away from it. Here's my conversation with Guy Edwards. Hi, Guy. Welcome to the show. How's things? Hi, Graham. Uh, not too bad, considering. Um, th- thanks for inviting me on. No, no, thanks for coming. I really, really appreciate it. And um, I've been just saying um, before we recorded, I've been stalking you for some time and I really do appreciate you coming on. Um, how about um, for the listeners, can you introduce yourself and just tell us a little bit about your photography? Yep. I'm, uh, my name's Guy Edwards. I've uh, been a professional photographer for uh, over 25 years, uh, concentrating on landscape, wildlife and some travel photography. Um, in the past, marketing my images through stock libraries and uh, in more recent years by running workshops and photo tours all over the world. And looking at your work, I mean, it's so diverse, um, landscape, wildlife, macro, you've got astro photography, some aurora stuff. Um, it looks to me like you're using lighting at times in places you might not expect um just a really high standard throughout and when i was preparing for this call i was just going down and down and down and down your feet and it just kind of endlessly amazing work so um yeah no and it's all beautifully presented beautifully shot and you're doing you're normally doing a lot of workshops presentations online courses huge stock library a couple of books published so there's i i know you know from my own journey in photography and in business that it's just a lot of work that goes into creating that and a lot of it, none of that just happens and i don't believe that you just woke up one day as a good photographer i just think that's a lot of hard work and experience and expertise so um i was really keen to talk to you and, and just get an insight into what you do really so um i read on your website that you have a degree in photography so you're already have one up on me because I, do, I only have an HND um, so was was the career in photography was that always on your mind from school? Uh, not from school no um, I started well I think I first picked up a camera when I was about 14 um, so you know that was at school um, but really I had just had a, an interest in natural history at that stage mm. and uh, you know the camera was a way of recording that and showing people what what you know what things I'd found Mm-hmm. And uh, and then from school, I, I actually studied nature conservation for three or four years um, before I realised that um, you know a career in that field was was going to be uh, quite, quite difficult um, at that time because um, so, so much work was being done by volunteers. Um, mm-hmm. It was quite difficult to to break into it. Um, lots of people wanting to do the, the same jobs. Um, so that's when I thought, you know, I might uh, give photography a go. So uh, I enrolled on a, a degree course at um, what was then uh, Salisbury College. I think it's now Wiltshire College. Um, that, that was, at the time, at least one of the top photography um, colleges, universities in the country. And um, that was a three three or four-year course, um, which uh, it, it was ideal for me, really, because I knew that I wanted to specialise in landscape and, and wildlife mm. and uh, although the course was geared towards more sort of advertising and portraiture um, I could always skew all of the projects to the subjects I was interested in so it was really mm. just a facility of being able to use their facilities and their equipment uh, with a bit of guidance at times um, so that saw me through the, the degree quite well and then whilst I was doing that degree I was submitting pictures to uh, to try to be taken on by a picture library uh, about halfway through the course I got taken on by the Telegraph Colour Library which at the time was one of the largest libraries in the world so I was mm. really lucky to get in with them um, they became um, Visual Communications Group VCG for a while and then they got uh, taken over by Getty Images mm. um, so basically it meant that as soon as I graduated I had an income already from mm. the stock images I was shooting um, which at the time, um, you know, in, in a library that big, in those days when we were still shooting film and the library's main marketing tool was a, a printed um, catalogue of images mm. that they sent out to their clients, I was able to earn, you know, a basic living from maybe 50, or 50 to 100 pictures, mm. um, which would um, continuously change 
um, over the years. But it was for a while, it was just a, a set of around that number of pictures. I would get maybe a dozen pictures into a catalogue, uh, and that was enough to uh, to earn a basic living. Mm. I mean, it's changed a, a huge amount in recent years um, to the point where you need you know, vastly more pictures, um, but still of equal quality. Um, it used to it used to be um, quality over quantity, but n- now it's quality and quantity mm. that you need with these uh, picture libraries. So, you know that that has become a, a very small part of of my business because um, these days I'm just I'm running workshops and tours nearly all of the time. That's at least ninety percent of my income is from workshops and tours. I've just decided to to do it that way um, mm. because I enjoy it and uh, it, and it works out for me. Yeah. It's it's such a, a great um, way to do it nowadays that allows a lot of people, I think, to do uh, well, uh, wildlife, nature, landscape photography as a job. But I, I guess that wasn't the case maybe when you started out. When did uh, when did you notice that workshops started to become a thing? Uh, I ran my first workshop, I think, in 2002. Um, and there really weren't that many photographers running workshops at that time. Mm. Um, and then, yeah, it's just gradually picked up from then and now. Well, everyone seems to be doing it. Um, yeah, probably quite a difficult market to break into now, I would think. Yeah, yeah, it's it's, it's become very saturated even in the last yeah. few years since I've been doing it. I'm one of the everybody's now. And <laughs> um, <laughs> but the the stock market as well has changed hugely, like you said. Um, so I, I guess with you, maybe me as well, being starting in the film days. The whole business has gone through a few different iterations in the last few years. So, um, I think has, for you yeah. to to still to still be going and it's it's a pretty much an achievement in itself, really. So, yeah, there's there's well, I guess good things about it as well. In that in the past, I was shooting. I guess I was trying to target my photography to suit the picture libraries because that was my main source of income. Mm. Uh, whereas now, I'm really not bothered about what I put in the picture libraries. I can shoot whatever I like. I can be more creative. If it sells, it sells. If it doesn't, I'm not really that bothered uh, mm. because it's such a small amount of my income now. So it's kind mm. of freed me up to be a bit more creative in what I do. And I, I think that shows in the work that I'm producing at the moment. Yeah. Uh, you know, so yeah. that's a plus point, I guess. Yeah, it does. And so do you find on, on that note, is it are you more successful when you're just shooting the pictures that you want to shoot or even as someone who's running a workshop it might be beneficial to put out certain types of images that might be seen to have a broader appeal I mean where does that line sit for you is it do you feel like it's better just to do your own thing or do you have to keep in mind the sort of marketplace for the workshops as it no, were? I think you definitely have to keep pushing yourself to come up with new images and new techniques and you know different look to your pictures um Otherwise, you're you're going to get overtaken by by everybody else, and mm. I need to be shooting images that are going to encourage people to come on my workshops to take those sort of pictures. So, yeah, it is still I think even more important to to be coming up with new ideas and developing mm. your photography. It's really good advice because photography is doable. We can all learn how to do it, but actually, people like yourself, I think, who are pushing the boundaries, pushing things along, actually innovating things and, and improving stuff even after all these years you're still finding ways to do innovative different things that that's those are the people who are going to thrive surely um so there's a there's a lot of different types of work that you do and um i wanted to i don't think we might not have time to talk about all of it but i did want to touch on a few separate things so can we talk a little bit about mushrooms or fungi yes yeah uh so um when did that become a part of your photography world? Uh, I guess I've been photographing that kind of subject since I since I began, um, but uh, only with a, a real sort of passion for I guess the last uh, ten or so years. Um, when it uh, it became clear that because it's such a kind of, it's a static subject, um, it's you're not dependent on the weather to photograph them particularly. Mm-hmm. Uh, it means that you can be really quite creative with uh, composition and lighting. You've got plenty of time. Um, you know, you can spend a lot of time photographing the same subject. Uh, you can work it from different angles and, um, you know, gradually refine your pictures until you've got something that you're really happy with. So mm-hmm. I guess that's what really appeals to me. And then there's the fact that 
um, even in this country, we've got such a huge range of different fungi species, um, such a range of colours, textures, shapes, um, and a lot of them people don't see. Unless you go out you know, specifically looking for these things, you don't see them. Mm. So, uh, you know, it's opening people's eyes as to what's out there in our forests and woodlands. There's, there's really some quite spectacular stuff. And I, personally, I think it's very photogenic as, as long as it's photographed in a, in a good way with good lighting and composition. Yeah, I, I mean, like you say, it's, I would overlook it myself. And honestly, mushrooms weird me out. I'm I sort of find them creepy. So I was, it really caught my eye that you've, you shoot them with so much craft and love, you know? Um, so if, I mean, I've shot, I've taken a couple of pictures before, uh, I mean, literally of mushrooms or whatever, but, um, I don't even know if I'm using the right term. Even the term freaks me out. So, uh, but if it was me, you know, I would just, you know, go down low and have a bash. But you're, it looks to me like you might be shooting with a mirror lens. There's maybe some lighting going on in there. Um, and I just, I'm just really fascinated that you found so, because it's something that obviously it kind of turns me off the subject, but it obviously really grabs you and you're shooting it with so much um, enthusiasm and the pictures are amazing and i just think that's awesome because i would have never even seen it well it's it's the it's the challenge i think of um as you say some people would see it as quite a mundane subject so it's the challenge of making that mundane subject look as spectacular as possible mm. uh, through different photography effects and, and lighting mm. it's possible to do that so yes i do use lighting uh, quite quite extensively, um, depending on the subject. Some of them look better just in natural light, diffused light, um, and then some of them look really nice backlit. You can really bring the colours and the textures out. Um, mm. So yeah, you know, it, it's a great subject for for workshops because you know having all that time to spend on a single subject, you can show people a variety of different techniques and lighting, and it's repeatable and. Uh, mm. You can go over the same techniques again and again with different fungi, and uh, you know it, it's a really good way of you know, reinforcing the techniques. So, do you have a trained eye now for seeing those mushrooms or fungi? You you know where to look for certain ones, or how does that work? The finding the subject. Uh, yes, it does. I mean, a lot of it's down to the to the weather a little bit. In that, it has to be sort of damp to to bring them out. Um, and you know, if there's really hard frosts, then you know you don't go looking for them then because that damages them. Um, so the conditions do have to be right. Um, although they they can occur all the way through the year, some of them, obviously the autumn months are when you get most of them coming up, and the, the best variety and greatest numbers. Um, so that's when I do most of my fungi photography. But mm. uh, yeah, it's just spot, spotting them in the leaf litter can be difficult. Some of them blend right in. Um, so. And the very, very tiny ones, I mean, I've been going into slime moulds as well, which are like a millimetre tall. And mm. You have to be down on your hands and knees, turning over logs and mm. looking really closely, even with a magnifying lens, to even mm. spot them in the first place. And uh, with those very, very tiny things, even once you've spotted that they're there, you can't see the detail or the shape. Uh, you've got no idea what composition you might be able to achieve until you actually get in there with a magnifying mm. lens or your macro lens to look at them really closely. Yeah, that's really interesting. So I was just talking to a Swedish photographer the other week uh, called Magnus Limbaum, and we were talking about shooting with a long lens in the landscape. And he was saying it's a bit like doing macro because you don't see the comp, you can't see the compositions till you look at it with the lens, you know, because it changes mm -hmm. the perspective and so on. And uh, he said oh, it's a bit like shooting macro on a big scale. So when you've described that, I thought, okay, I, I get that. When you, you've got such a subject that's so small, you really have to see it in the camera to really see um, the compositional possibilities. Would that be right? Um, yes. Yeah, I would agree with that. It's, it's the same technique. When I'm shooting l landscapes with a really long lens, I often have my binoculars with me to allow me to spot the initial composition before mm. I get the lens out. Um, you know, it's the same with the fungi. You've got to get your lens out, find them in the first place, you know, your magnifying lens, before you get your camera lens out and have a look at them really closely. And then you have to go down on your stomach on the forest floor and, and get mucky and get in about there. Uh, well, you used to, uh, but with cameras with articulating screens, that's made it a lot easier in that respect. You just get yeah. dirty knees now. Yeah, okay. Obviously, I don't have an articulating screen. So <laughs> um, 
So I just saw in a lot of the descriptions on those shots, a lot of them are done in the New Forest. Is that a local location for you? Yes, it is. It's um, less than an hour away from where I live in Dorchester. Um, mm-hmm. So very easy to get to. Uh, I mean, we've got you know, really good places for fungi here in, in Dorset, but the New Forest is a much bigger area. It's got a lot more ancient broadleaf woodland. And um, and it's although it's a managed forest, when the, when a big tree falls over, they just let them rot away naturally. Uh, mm. Which in a lot of forests they they don't they would clear those away uh, to prevent disease, um, but you know that in the new forest provides a, a huge range of habitats for a wide variety of fungi species and you know you can find a huge amount in a small area. Even though when I'm running workshops there, we tend to go to at, at the most two different locations, and um, we probably walk um, less than a, a quarter of a mile in a whole day, and mm. we find fungi to to keep us busy for a whole day quite mm. easily. Okay, so I'm an outsider to this world. It's way outside of what I've ever done. It's just one of those things, macro, that I've never really done. Uh, so usually I have a gear round later on in the in the talk, but because we're talking about different things, uh, let's ask about your gear for this kind of macro work on a location like this. Um, is it some specialist equipment for focusing and that kind of thing? Uh, well, basically... To do basic fungi photography, you don't need particularly specialised kit. Just a, you know, camera body, preferably with an articulating screen, because that does help, uh, and mm-hmm. a macro lens. Um, a one-to-one mm-hmm. macro lens is is going to get you uh, in close to quite a lot of different uh, fungi. And, and then the larger fungi, um, like field mushrooms, fly agarics, the red ones with the white spots, um, they're actually better photographed with a telephoto lens um, to isolate them from the background. Um, mm-hmm. You would use the macro lens for the smaller ones. Um, but then a, a lot of the pictures you'll have seen on my Instagram feed and on my website will have been quite small fungi. Um, some of the really tiny ones are actually the most photogenic. Uh, and there I would be using the in-camera focus bracketing function to mm-hmm. shoot a, a stack of images to get front-to-back sharpness on the fungi itself. Mm. Uh, but that allows me to still shoot at wide open aperture so the background and the foreground are still nice and diffused. But mm-hmm. you, you get this exceptional sharpness on the subject. Uh, and then for the really tiny stuff, the slime moulds, um, which are like one, two millimetres tall, uh, then I use an automated focusing rail with a, a dedicated five times macro lens, um, which you, you can't actually focus that lens. You, you have to use the focusing rail to focus it. Uh, and again, you're just making use of the shallow depth of field and you're pushing the plane of focus through the subject, taking multiple shots. Mm. Um, and for the um, in-camera focus bracketing, I might be shooting maybe 25 to 30 images to stack. Uh, with the focusing rail and the really tiny slime moulds, it can be uh, over 100 images stacked. And then um, you can stack those in Photoshop, um, but the more images in the stack the slower Photoshop becomes at stacking them. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I use Helicon Focus Pro software to stack them. Um, and it, that just, it does a better job. You've got more control, different blending methods, and and also it's much quicker. And the, the slime molds, is that the ones, they look almost like little balloons? Yes, some of, some of them do. Um, okay. Yeah, they're, they're the fruiting bodies of a slime mold. Sporangia, they're called. And yeah, one to two millimetres tall typically and okay. uh, they don't last very long maybe a day and they also change shape and color and, and size uh, through that period so uh, you can get a number of different shots from the same ones uh, once you've found them right that's so interesting again nothing I, I know anything about so um and so what was i going to ask there the with regards to lighting are you just using uh, like a speed light that you take with you or anything more specialized than that? No, I very rarely use flash for fungi because it's much better to have a continuous light source so you can actually okay. see the effect of the light as you're moving it around. Mm. Uh, so I use a, a small pair of LED light panels. Um, right. They're just very cheap ones I bought on eBay years ago. Um, each one has a 150 LED bulbs and then there's a diffusion screen in front. Um, and I just find them ideal, particularly for this subject for macro stuff. Uh, they're easily controllable. They have a nice uh, colour temperature. Um, the batteries last all day. Um, and they're, they're actually quite weather resistant. I use them in the rain a lot. Um, and they've lasted me for about 10 years so far. They only cost £15 each. <laughs> that's a good buy. In the photography world, that's amazing. Exactly. Yeah. 
Well, okay, I think people should come and have a look at your Instagram for your mushroom and fungi photography. It's quite spectacular, and um, the some of the sort of bokeh and the just the focus uh, that you've got, that you've achieved the depth of field and the lighting, it all adds up to be really something special. Let's move on if we can talk about the landscape. I know we're living in a strange time just now. And um, you're obviously used to being out and about. I, I just wondered if the lockdowns and restricted movements, if that's affected or altered your feelings about landscape photography or just being in the outdoors in general. I wouldn't say it's uh, changed my feelings about it. I mean, landscape photography is still um, the, the largest part of the work that I do. Um, so, yes, I'm missing being able to travel to uh, far off places and, and spectacular locations but you know I live in Dorset so we've got some pretty spectacular landscape locations here um, which I, you know I can still get to I can even walk to some good locations from where I live uh, mm-hmm. so it's not like I've not been able to take any pictures uh, even during the lockdowns and um, you know when I was able to to do um, one-to-one workshops when the lockdowns were eased I was concentrating on Dorset and uh, it meant that I was able to go out and find some new locations in my local patch, which was quite nice because, uh, uh, to be honest, I hadn't done a lot in Dorset uh, in recent years hmm. because I've been travelling so much. Yeah, it's so easy to overlook the, your doorstep, isn't it? I do that as well. And, yeah. Um, so looking down your feed, there are these uh, shots of sort of an undulating landscape with the early mist look like the shot with a long lens. Is that your local kind of spot? It is, yes, in West Dorset. Yeah, we've got a lot of landscape like that. Okay, it's great. It's really incredible to be there. So, um, And so are you someone who goes out with something in mind or are you quite good at finding new things composition-wise? Uh, a bit of both, really. Um, I don't like to ever go out without some idea in my head of what I'm going to try and or where I'm going to go, or what I'm going to try and achieve, uh, because I think you can, you can waste a lot of time like that. Um, so I've always got some kind of idea um, but sometimes that doesn't work and then I have to go looking for alternatives so yes Mm. I do spend quite a lot of time looking for new locations or new angles in locations that I already know quite well Um, but yes I've I've always got some sort of a plan but I do that as well but you just can't hold on to the plan too rigidly you know because sometimes you just have to let it go and move on right exactly I mean in misty conditions uh, which you know, it's my favourite conditions to photograph in. I really like the mist; it adds so much uh, drama and atmosphere to the landscape and and depth as well. Um, mm. I always get up maybe three hours before sunrise, um, so I can get to my first choice location to see if it's going to work. If there's mist there, uh, but then mm. if it doesn't, then I've still got time before sunrise to get to an alternative, and then possibly even another alternative, um, just to give me a, a greater chance of capturing that shot when the conditions are ideal. Yeah, that's the kind of dedication that you really need, I think, to make it work in this kind of business. I mean, it's it's not everybody is willing to to get up that early to do that, but it pays off, obviously. Yeah. Um, a lot of your landscapes. Then I noticed that when I just mentioned one where it's, it seems like it's shot from a sort of elevated position with a long lens, um, but a lot of your other landscapes are shot with a really wide lens. It seems like you use a um, a fisheye sometimes. Whichever way you go at it, there's always a, a beautiful sense of depth in your images. You mentioned it there as well. So I was interested to know how you go about, do you go purposely trying to create a sense of depth or how do you kind of, um, how do you go at that in the location? Uh, yes, I do try to. I mean, if I had to pick two lenses, um, it would be a really long telephoto and a very wide, wide angle. That's my two mm. favourite focal lengths to work with. Um, and in terms of getting depth into the picture, um, I mean, there's various techniques you can use with a telephoto lens. I think it really helps uh, if you've got a little bit of mist in the landscape. That always helps to give more depth because the mist is giving separation between all the distant hills. Mm. Um, so you get the depth that way and the recession effect. Uh, but also backlighting. I, I really like working with backlights no matter what I'm shooting, uh, wildlife or landscape. And I think that also adds a lot of depth to the picture. Again, it enhances that sense of uh, recession in the landscape. And then, you know, locations like woodlands, uh, which are you know, p- pretty difficult to photograph, I think. Um, if you photograph them in clear conditions, then everything just blends together. You get all of the tree trunks stacked up against mm. each other and it all becomes very busy and confusing and you get no sense of depth, really. 
but as soon as you get a little bit of mist or fog in between the trees, then you instantly get that separation of the tree trunks uh, and they recede off into the distance and that draws your eye into the picture. Mm. So you know, those are the two things that uh, I would say work well with a telephoto, but then with a wide angle, it's just uh, finding interesting foregrounds and uh, I like to get really close to the foreground elements if I can. Um, you know, I mean, really, really close and then mm. possibly to the extent where I need to then focus stack to get enough depth of field to get the front mm -hmm. to back sharpness. But, you know, that can really enhance the sense of depth and draw your eye into the picture along with the obvious things like leading lines and, and a prominent distant focal point, if you can find one. Mm. I always I've spoken about this on the show before, but I always struggle with a wide lens. I just don't think I know how to use it. So uh, I was talking to a wedding photographer about this. Um, who's who's shooting wide and I was like oh, it makes me uncomfortable looking at your shots because I know you have to be right next to people to do that and um, so I just find with landscape it what I find with the wide lens is it just pushes the focal point thing too far away so you obviously have the knack for it what would be your tips for really making the best of a wide angle lens um, I, I would su I would suggest to get close to your foreground elements because that really does make quite a big difference. Um, and then be careful with your depth of field to make sure that you can get sufficient front to back sharpness. But um, you, you know, maybe your focal point doesn't have to be that far away, but with a wide angle lens, it's obviously going to appear further away in the frame. Mm. Uh, but it might actually be quite close to you. And once you get really close to your foreground element, then you've got that distant uh, or more distant uh, focal point it will quickly draw your eye through the picture and give you that sense of depth. Mm. Um, but yeah, obviously work work with uh, lead-in lines as well. Mm. That's, that's really important. That does help to give you a sense of depth. And then obviously backlighting can help a lot. And, uh, and still misty conditions can also help even with a wide angle, but not to the same extent as with a telephoto. Um, and then you know, obviously with a wide angle, you have to make sure that you've got a good quality wide angle lens that's going to give you good sharpness even in the corners of the frame uh, and make sure that you keep it really clean. That's uh, critical, particularly with a wide angle lens. So any any little bits of dust or smears on the lens, if you're shooting into the light, then they're going to cause flare, which is uh, obviously going to spoil your pictures. It's really good advice. Um, so let's just segue to astrophotography. I read on your website um, that you got into astrophotography fairly recently. Um, your shots are great, especially I really love the coastline kind of ones. Um, can anyone kind of do this or what are the keys to sort of a successful astrophotography outing? Yeah, I got into astrophotography a couple of years ago, um, really because uh, a lot of the, my clients who come on workshops with me were asking whether we were going to do any night photography on the trips that I run. So I decided to one summer I would teach myself how to do it. So uh, I started with just using a wide angle lens at wide open aperture and a really high ISO, which you know, most people can do. And uh, you can get pretty good results that way. But obviously at a really high ISO, I'm talking like 6,400 ISO, yeah. uh, there's going to be noise, particularly in the sky, and that's going to mask some of the fainter stars. Mm. So you then have to use either noise reduction or you stack a number of images to reduce that noise. Um, I found that that softened the stars a bit too much for me, both of those methods. So mm -hmm. in the end, I bought a sky tracker, uh, which allows you to align the camera with uh, with Polaris, or it aligns the tracker with Polaris. Uh, and then when you turn the tracker on, it moves the whole camera at the same speed as the Earth's movement. So it means you can get away with really long exposure times at low ISOs mm -hmm. and not necessarily at a wide open aperture mm -hmm. to really increase the image quality. Um, it makes a, a massive difference. Um, and these trackers are, the one that I've got is an iOptron um, Sky Tracker Pro. It was 250, 300 pounds, so it's not a huge investment. Um, as opposed to if you were to just use a wide angle lens, you need a really good quality wide angle lens to perform well wide open. Mm. That's going to be over a thousand pounds. So if you don't mm. already have a lens like that, then I think a sky tracker is a much better option. Uh, mm. There is a downside though. Um, you have to shoot two images because all of my um, astro landscape photography has a landscape element in the foreground. Mm. When you turn the tracker on, with a long exposure, it's going to blur the foreground completely. So you have to do one exposure for the foreground, one for the sky with the tracker turned on. Mm. 
Um, so one with it turned off, one with it turned on. And mm -hmm. then you have to blend those two pictures together in Photoshop using layers, masks and selections. But yeah, it's a pretty simple process. It takes me maybe two or three minutes to process the picture from start to finish. Um, so, you know, it's not, it's not a big job and, uh, mm -hmm. and it is all done without moving the camera. So it's as much in camera as possible, but just mm -hmm. maximizing the quality you can get from the images. Yeah, I think it's a great way to go at it. It's amazing with astrophotography. I don't, I do it when I'm leading workshops. Yeah, it's amazing how quickly the stars move along and turn into trails rather than points of light. So, uh, yeah, I can see that that tracker must just make such a difference. Yeah, I mean, you're limited to pretty much 15 seconds, I think, before the stars start to streak with a wide angle lens. Mm. Um, so with a tracker, I can shoot, um, I've done some 10 minute exposures and the stars mm. have been absolutely pinpoint sharp. Uh, typically it's around two to four minutes. Okay. That's, I would definitely have kicked the tripod in that two to four minutes, but you look <laughs> like you've got it down to a finer. Um, before, uh, well, a related subject, um, Aurora. I noticed you've got some great Aurora shots. Have you got any particularly memorable Aurora experiences and where's the best place to go for that? Um, best experiences. I mean, I think Iceland is, is one of the best places to capture Aurora because of the, the variety of different landscape types that you can get and using the foreground of your Aurora pictures. Mm -hmm. uh, I know maybe um, Norway is perhaps more reliable for clear skies, uh, but perhaps slightly less choice of, of foregrounds, different foregrounds and different landscapes to include, whereas Iceland has got such a, you know, quite a varied and unique landscape. Um, and also it doesn't tend to freeze as much in Iceland. So you've got quite a lot of open water areas where you can still get the Aurora reflected. Uh, which okay. is always good. So one of my most memorable Aurora experiences was in Iceland. Mm -hmm. um, I was leading a workshop. We do a, a, a day where we drive out into the central highlands uh, on the dirt roads. We'd been out there all day and uh, we we waited until um, until it started to get dark just to see if there would be any Aurora activity. Um, and even before it got dark, you could see the aurora. Mm. Um, so that meant that we never actually got back to our hotel that night. We spent the whole night out there in uh, mm. you know, 50 miles from the nearest building uh, photographing <laughs> the aurora, and it just covered the entire sky. Uh, it wasn't actually forecast to be that strong. Um, so, you know, aurora forecasts are a bit like weather forecasts. They're not that reliable. Mm. Um, so th this was a really good display, and it was so bright that it was illuminating the landscape as well. Mm. Uh, but then there was a, another occasion when I was actually in Northumberland um, and I'd gone to Sycamore Gap. This was back in 2014. Um, you know, most people know Sycamore Gap on Hadrian's Wall. Uh, I'd gone there specifically to get a night shot with the, just the stars behind the tree, um, something I'd done many times in the past. Mm. Um, and again, I had no idea that there was going to be aurora. Uh, but when we took our first shots, uh, everything came out red and you had the curtain effect of the aurora behind the mm. tree. Um, so that's probably still one of my favourite Aurora pictures, um, particularly mm. as it was taken in the UK. Yeah, that's amazing. Um, let me just quickly ask you about Scotland, because I, you know, I noticed you've been up here a few times. When did you first come to Scotland for landscapes? And what do you think the Scottish landscape has that, that really works for you? Yeah, I mean, I've been coming to Scotland for for, for years. It was, uh, I guess, family holidays that introduced me to Scotland. We used to come up there uh, uh, nearly every year um, on walking holidays um, so I, I really um, I really like the Scottish landscape from a young age um, and then um, I guess uh, when I was first studying photography I was reading uh, some books by uh, Mike Tomkies a Scottish uh, wildlife photographer who used to live up on um, uh, Loch Shiel I think it was um, and he you know his, his books really inspired me um, to continue with photography and, and even to take it up as a, as a career. Um, so again, that uh, sort of enforced my love of the Scottish landscape and wildlife. Um, so, you know, I've been coming up uh, ever since, um, you know, several times a year, uh, and obviously running workshops in various places. Um, f favorite place? I mean, I, I really like uh, the area around Torridon. Um, just be mm. because the mountains are, are so spectacular there, the fact that mm. they come right from sea level up to over 3,000 feet, I think makes them some of the most spectacular mountains in the country. Um, but I guess the Outer Hebrides would be my, my favourite location in Scotland at the moment, um, mm. particularly for coastal landscapes. Um, 
uh, yeah, particularly like Harris and Lewis for the fact that um, in any weather there are really great pictures to be taken, even in mm. really dark, really gloomy weather. Uh, the colours in the landscape, uh, particularly on Harris, are, are quite spectacular, uh, and you can get successful pictures, you know, wh- whatever the conditions. Mm, yeah, I noticed your shots from Lewis and Harris. Um, I really liked how you'd handled them. They would st- not you'd gone beyond the sort of standard shots that you see on a lot of websites or a lot of feeds. And yeah, it's uh, it's a great place to to go. I went one time. Um, I only had a couple of days to go, and I, I just it was really. It, it was just raining the whole time, so I didn't have a successful trip really. But um, obviously, it's one spectacular place to be. Uh, when it comes to landscape photography, let's have a quick touch on gear. What comes out of your kit bag? What's your sort of camera and lens combination, generally speaking? Uh, well, the camera I use is a Canon 5D SR, uh, the 50 megapixel body. Uh, I mean, I don't need 50 megapixels for the work that I do. Um, you know, my work rarely gets used at a huge size but mm-hmm. I think once you've had a 50 megapixel camera it's really difficult to yeah. to go to a smaller resolution so uh, although I don't crop my images um, I do all my cropping in camera so I've always used um, I've always used zoom lenses mm-hmm. I much prefer using zooms to primes because I like to get the composition absolutely dead right mm-hmm. uh, in camera um, and then lenses of choice um, for a wide angle I use the 16 to 35 2.8 uh, mark 3 uh, and that, that's important because uh, the Mark III version is both very good for astrophotography because it's very sharp in the corners of the frame wide open. Uh, and it's also one of the most flare-resistant wide-angle lenses I've ever used. Mm. Uh, so I can shoot straight into the sun with it. And uh, in many cases, I don't get any flare at all. I don't mm. know how they've achieved that with a lens with so many elements in it. But, you know, that was quite a revelation when I first got that lens. Mm. It's a great um, focal length just to have in the one lens, though, the 16 to 35. It is. really handy. Yeah, it's very versatile. I I find uh, anything much wider than that um, is quite difficult to use, although I I use an 8 to 15 mil fisheye quite a lot for landscape photography, but um, not as nowhere near as often as the 16 to 35. It's just useful in certain situations. Mm. Uh, And then probably my, my most used lens overall is the 100 to 400 Mark II, mm-hmm. which again is a very versatile lens. It's um, extremely sharp, even wide open, um, so it's good, great for landscapes. You know, it's a versatile focal length, particularly for the type of shots that I like to capture. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then equally, it's a really good lens for photographing birds in flight. It's got fast autofocus, uh, and it also focuses down to just under a meter, so it's really useful for the close-ups of uh, fungi and flowers and insects as well. Mm, it's, I know that a lot of Canon shooters have that lens. It's really a popular lens. So it's, it's the best lens I've I've ever owned. Tripod, obviously. Have you got a special? Um, what kind of tripod are you using? <laughs> yeah, I mean tripods are really important to me. Most of my pictures are taken on a sturdy tripod. Um, I don't believe in lightweight tripods. I've, I've mm. tried them. I've tried the carbon fiber ones. Um, some of them are horrendously expensive, these lightweight ones. Mm-hmm. Uh, they just don't work for me when I'm stood on a windy cliff top or a mountain top. Mm. Um, you know, the vibration that you get through the legs with the wind hitting the legs is transmitted up to the camera. And then it's very difficult to get sharp pictures, particularly if you're using long exposures, which I very often do. Mm. Um, so I've always used quite sturdy tripods. Um, always had a, had a problem with using tripods in coastal locations because as soon as the salt water gets to them, they seize up. And then if you don't religiously clean them very thoroughly after every visit to the coast, then uh, you can re- easily and quite quickly ruin a you know, £1,000 tripod. Mm. So uh, a couple of years ago, um, the German um, video tripod manufacturer, Zuckler, um, introduced one called a, um, a Flotec 75, uh, which is... For a video tripod, it's quite compact, but um, it's got quite broad carbon fibre leg sections, uh, which are very stable. Um, mm-hmm. I can, it can shoot flat to the ground at, at uh, head height as well. Um, mm-hmm. And it's only got um, one release lever for the legs on each leg. So they're, both, they're all three at the top of the tripod. So it means you never have to bend down to adjust your tripod legs. All the adjustment is done at the top. Mm. Uh, and it makes it a very quick tripod to put up and down. So if you're shooting in transient light or you're shooting a wildlife subject that just suddenly appears, you can get the tripod up in like a second mm. and be ready to shoot. Um, so that is 
by far my tripod of choice. And then working in, in coastal locations, I've had no problems with it at all. Um, the basic design means that um, uh, any salt water f- you know, sort of flows out of the legs quite quickly. Um, mm-hmm. But um, when I get home, I just put the legs in a bucket of water, uh, release the leg levers, and then just pump the whole thing up and down. And it uh, forces water through all the leg sections and all the joints right. and flushes it all out, and it's ready mm. to use again. So it's really quick to uh, to sort of maintain in that way. Can we talk about frogs? Yes. Okay. I just Wildlife, to me, uh, is a completely different discipline than landscape photography. Landscape's kind of methodical and... Wildlife is very fast, very in the moment. You have to be very visually aware. Not that you don't have to be visually aware with landscapes, but, you know, it's like it's much more in the moment, um, quicker kind of. You have to be very switched on. Um, so you're using your skills and your equipment in a very different way. Um, do you enjoy that changing of pace between the different disciplines of photography that you do? I do, yeah. I mean, that's why I shoot such a variety of subjects. I really enjoy that variety. And, um, and having to go out with a completely sort of different mindset to photograph different subjects I think that's what keeps it fresh and keeps me interested so you know I never um, get the sort of photographic doldrums that some photographers Mm. seem to suffer from Mm. Um, if that ever happens then you know I just switch subjects and uh, try something else yeah it's great Um, so when I was looking down your feed your wildlife photography there's a lot of great shots the ones that really jumped out at me were the frogs Um, the emerald glass frogs I mean, they're tiny, right? How challenging is it to photograph a tiny frog like that? I just feel like it's going to jump away as soon as I look at it. No, it's not. It's not uh, one of the hardest subjects, really. Um, they are very small. They're about an inch long, mm-hmm. um, and most of them are nocturnal. Um, the, the diurnal ones are very difficult to find, but uh, mm-hmm. the nocturnal ones are, are not so difficult because obviously you have to go out in the dark using head torches to find them. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you can find them sometimes because they're calling. Mm-hmm. Um, and they do tend to sit in quite prominent positions on leaves. Uh, but also the fact that you're out at night using a head torch means that you're concentrating 100% in that beam of the head torch in a relatively mm-hmm. small area. So when your beam of your head torch finds a frog, you see it straight away. So it's not like um, when you're walking through the woods and you know there's so much to look at that uh, it all becomes very confusing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, ha- having the head torch really helps. Um, and they don't tend to be that bothered about you getting close to them, uh, which is good because uh, it allows you to get in really close with a macro lens and get some good detailed shots. Mm. So how close do you need to be when you're shooting those guys? Uh, you're just a few inches away. Um, and yes, sometimes they will jump. Sometimes they'll jump onto the front element of the lens. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, that's fun. Um, and so, okay, it looks like you might be shooting these guys with some lighting as well. So this is in Costa Rica, is that right? That's right, yeah. Um, that, it seems like uh, that would be quite a challenging environment to, to work in. Is it kind of hot and humid? What are the challenges of working in a, a sort of rainforest, cloud forest situation? Yeah, it is, uh, it is quite a challenge. I mean, yes, I am using uh, flash for most of the frogs. Mm-hmm. Um, just one point to, to make about that is that, uh, you know, frogs, a lot of them are nocturnal. They have sensitive eyes. So the flashes that I use have a built-in modeling light. So yeah, that's quite a weak light. That mm-hmm. allows me to uh, find the perfect angle for the flash to hold the flash before I press the shutter button and the flash fires. Mm-hmm. So in most cases, the flash is only going to fire on the fla- on the frog once. Uh, I can just use the modeling light to, to get the angle right so I don't have to flash lots of times until I'm, I've got the shot I'm happy with. Mm. Uh, so that's quite important for the frogs. Uh, and then in terms of the environment, yes, it can be quite hot and humid, um, but only in the lowlands. So when I run my trips there, I make sure that we're always going up in altitude every time we change location. So from the moment we we land, we're starting in the lowland rainforest where it is really hot and humid. Mm-hmm. And then from that, from that point, every time we change location, we're going up in elevation. Uh, and that, that way we don't get uh, very big problems with the, the moisture in the equipment at all. It all sort of sorts itself out. Um, there's a couple of occasions where the the itinerary has gone a bit wrong and then we've had to dip down in elevation then you may have to wait two maybe three hours for the equipment to acclimatize Mm. because it will all just mist up straight away Mm -hmm. uh, and then so you can then start taking pictures again so it is really important to bear that in mind 
Mm, it's great to know that. I would have never thought of that. Um, and so you, when you go out there, are you looking for a particular subject on a particular day or maybe a different animals that are at different altitudes? How does that go? Are you shooting for something in particular or are you just seeing what you see? A bit of both, really. Yes, we, we're always going to different locations for a specific subject. Mm-hmm. But in Costa Rica, with such a huge amount of wildlife there, mm-hmm. you're always going to come across things that you don't expect to see. So you're always finding new stuff. And whilst you might be photographing your main sort of target species, it's quite likely that something else will fly past and attract your interest and you'll go off doing that instead. Mm. Um, that's one of the things I really like about Costa Rica. Of all, of all the locations that I visit, Costa Rica is my favourite by quite a long way, just mm. because of that biodiversity in a relatively small area Hmm. and then you're also shooting are are there hummingbirds there as well is that that's right yes okay so that seems like a really challenging subject as well can you talk about the challenges of shooting a hummingbird yeah yeah i mean actually they're they're relatively easy to photograph they're being attracted to the grounds of the lodges uh, because they put sugar sugar water feeders out Mm -hmm. Um, so they're being brought out of the rainforest for you even before you arrive Um, and then you can actually photograph them quite successfully beside the feeders hovering um, with natural light Um, but you know you don't want all your pictures to look like that so then Mm -hmm. we do some work with uh, flash uh, so sort of on-camera flash for for fill light Um, and then we have multiple flash setups as well Um, so we use a flower that's been baited with sugar water that attracts the hummingbirds to the flower Uh, and then we use a multiple flash setup so that we're using really fast exposure times you're basically using the flash duration 10 15 thousandth of a second to really Mm -hmm. freeze the action Um, and then because you're kind of controlling the situation you can be quite creative with the compositions that you can achieve with the hummingbirds uh, using the right kind of flowers and uh, the right kind of backgrounds to uh, refine your picture and get something uh, a little bit more interesting. So it's a high-speed sync flash then. Um, I'm just trying to like work out the shutter speed. Um, uh, well, it's, not, it's not really the shutter speed because um, it's all flash. There's no ambient light at all. Yeah, yeah. So the exposure is done just by the flash duration, okay. uh, which is why it's such a fast, fast time. Um, so the shutter speed on the camera is usually set to something you, like the sync speed, 200, yeah, 250th of a second. Yeah. Okay, I get you. Okay, and so the, the the duration of the exposure effectively is the duration of the flash. Exactly. Okay, yeah. I get you. Um, it's really fascinating work. I'd love to talk more about it, but we've got more to do and we're running over time. So um, you work with a local guide um, there. How much does that help you on the ground? It's absolutely essential. Um, I certainly wouldn't run workshops without a local guide there. Uh, they can be so useful. They know, you know exactly what is where and when, uh, when we need to be there, because um, obviously things change from year to year and season to season. Mm. Um, the guide that I use in Costa Rica is exceptionally good. Um, he's got a real passion for wildlife and a real passion for making sure that his clients get exactly what they want. Um, he's also got quite a sick sense of humour, a bit like me, so uh, we get on really well. And um, yeah, I mean, without a guide, I, my workshop certainly wouldn't be as successful there. Uh, it makes a, such a huge difference, and not just in Costa Rica. Um, all of the wildlife locations I visit anywhere in the world, I have a local guide uh, to to really help make sure that we're in the right place at the right time. That's great. And so if somebody wanted to go on one of your workshops, um, I know you, you don't just go to the usual locations. You go to places like Slovenia, Bulgaria, Greece, Czech Republic, Ecuador. It looks like you're really offering something different. So what would somebody expect if they wanted to go on a tour with you? I mean, yeah, I, tr- I try to uh, to visit new locations um, and, and different places as much as possible. Uh, the, the trouble is at the moment when you start visiting those and, and then people start seeing the pictures, mm-hmm. uh, then everyone else goes there and you know, starts running workshops. So, you know, like Slovenia, uh, I started running workshops there maybe 15 years ago. I don't think there was anybody else running workshops there. Uh, now you know, there's loads of workshops going there. So that's why I'm moving more towards Bulgaria and, and, and Greece and um, and Ecuador and, and other places that are not quite as, as popular at the moment. And I'll continue mm-hmm. doing that. Um, but during my workshops, um, I guess you can expect to be worked pretty hard. Um, mm-hmm. I I tend to treat my workshops as if I was there on a 
it's like a stock shoot myself and I was trying to get as many good pictures out of that time as I possibly can. Mm. And I want my clients to do the same as well as learning techniques along the way. So, you know, we're always starting before dawn, finishing after sunset, sometimes working through the night, um, sometimes sleeping in the middle of the day when the light's harsh. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, some people find it um, you know, quite a challenge. But in the end, I think generally they quite enjoy it. I mean, you know, I get a, a lot of repeat business on workshops, so I guess mm. they must enjoy it. Uh, and at least they, they get all the pictures that, that they hope to from that trip. Yeah, if you're getting people coming back again, that, that says it all, really. So, um, well, thanks for that. I would have, I'd love to go in depth with, on each of those things that we've spoken about. But I just wanted to really give an overview of what you do uh, and just by touching on the different things. So thanks so much for that. Um, this takes us to um, a special round, which I call double exposure. And uh, I'm going to ask you about the story behind a particular shot. And then you can choose one that was a, a big moment or um, a really fun experience or something memorable to tell me about from your career. The one I'm going to go with, there's a shot of a frog on a branch and there's the lots of sort of out of focus water droplets uh, around and he's just got this kind of fed up kind of look in his eye um it's it's just i think it's sort of it's such an eye-catching shot for so many reasons just the composition the look on the frog's face the lighting the the rain do you do you know the shot i'm talking about uh, I've got quite a few frog pictures like that, so uh, <laughs> I know roughly, you know, yeah, kind of shot you're talking about. Um, so, what can you tell us about that kind of thing? It just looks like a lot of fun to get up close with those guys and interact and get the shots. Really, what can you tell me about that kind of shot? Yeah, they, they are a really fun subject to to work with, um, and the fact that they allow you to get quite close um, is a real. You know, benefit that allows you to be quite creative. Uh, one of the things in Costa Rica is that because you're working in the rainforest, I like to have rain or water in my pictures showing, mm-hmm. actually showing in the pictures as much as possible. And um, uh, most of the wildlife is much more active when it's raining. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, frogs and even the birds and mammals, um, you know, they're much more visible and active when it's raining, uh, which helps you to get the, the rain in your pictures. Um, but some of the frogs are taken with, with natural rain falling on them. Others are taken with a, using a water spray, uh, to, you know, to, to mimic the rain. Mm. Um, when I'm, when I'm doing that, when I'm using the water spray, then, um, I fire the water directly up in the air and then, allow it to fall straight down so the water droplets are always coming straight down Mm. Uh, and also with quite a wide spray so that um, in the case of the frogs when you're using flash you want the flashlight to catch water droplets at different distances Mm -hmm. um, so you get different sized bokeh circles and again it looks more natural as if there's rain falling all Mm. around. Yeah it's totally effective it's really really good fun. Okay let me ask you then if there is a you've done so many shots but anything that just stands out as a great moment or something that opened a door for you or just something really epic memorable uh, from your photography career i suppose one of the, one of the most memorable th- things was a, just a, a funny story really um, i was photographing um, i had a, a small workshop group i think there's three photographers with me we were doing fungi photography um, in, in worcestershire i think it was and um, we'd found a little group of fungus on the ground and um, I was going to be showing them the, the technique of using a long lens to isolate the subject from the background and, and using lights to backlight them. And, um, you know, all of that is done with me sort of laying on the ground, getting things all set up just right. And, it, you know, it takes some time to get it all just right. You, you're having to move distracting elements in the background and mm. moving the lights around and just tidying things up to get a nice clean shot. So, mm. you know, it can, it can take 20 minutes or so before you're happy with the shot. And the wood that we were working in happened to be quite close to a main road, so we could see cars driving past. And um, just as I was getting to the point where I was ready to take the shot and they were you know, stood there listening to what I was doing and I was showing them you know, how to go about it, uh, this police car pulls up next to us and the policeman come walking through the woods towards us to see what we're doing uh, because apparently some people that had been driving past had phoned up to report three men burying a dead body in the woods. <laughs> <laughs> so so you managed to get away with it then we got away with it yeah, yeah. good uh, that's amazing so um it's amazing all you've been all around the world and it comes back to Worcestershire for your most memorable moment for so there you go <laughs> um okay this brings us to the quick fire round which I call motor drive okay this is a tricky one for you I think wide angle or telephoto telephoto okay coffee or tea coffee 
Uh, okay, since there's a Scottish connection, Iron Brew or whiskey? Uh, whiskey, definitely. Okay. <laughs> uh, head or heart? Head. Expensive lens cloth or the corner of your shirt? Uh, visible dust um, magic cloth. Okay, that sounds like a fancy cloth then. It is a little, yeah. Okay, okay, good. A professional at work. Um, what was the last great um, book, series, album that you experienced? Oh, that's a tricky one because I don't read very much or, or watch much television. Um, but I did. I watched the the whole of The Crown on Netflix uh, during lockdown, and I thought that was very good. Okay, yeah, it doesn't seem like you have time to do anything. I mean, photography must be such a huge part of your life. Yes, it's all I do, all I think about. <laughs> and then, is it your hobby as well as work? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, I know what you mean. Um, okay, what's a weird thing I could find in your camera bag? Uh, well, my camera bag is very well organised, so there's nothing in it that shouldn't be there, apart from you might find something weird that had crawled in there in Costa Rica sometimes. <laughs> a frog. Okay, and do you have a favourite photographer at the moment? Um, I would say probably um, Theo Bossboom. Mm-hmm. He, uh, he produces some, some really uh, interesting uh, details in the landscape. Uh, he seems to be able to, to see compositions in scenes that most people, including me, would just walk straight past. Mm. So I do find him uh, quite inspirational. Okay, I'll put the link in the show notes. Um, is there a dream location or project that you'd love to shoot? Uh, I guess the location that I'm most keen to get to at the moment is Patagonia. Um, I've not been there before. I was supposed to be there last April and obviously that got cancelled. So mm. uh, I'm still very keen to get there. I mean, I've seen lots of spectacular pictures of that area. I'm quite keen to get there and see if I can find something different. Mm. Um, and when do you feel at peace with the universe? Um, I guess probably when I'm doing the night photography and uh, you know when I'm doing it on my own, uh, you stood very often in quite a remote location, um, in total silence, nobody else around. You're not having to worry about uh, other photographers coming and standing in front of you or mm-hmm. anything like that. You can go to some of the iconic locations and have them completely to yourself. So, yeah, I think at night. Great. OK, thanks for that. And um, what's on your radar at the moment? You seem like you're quite busy with online courses and so on. I mean, yes, that's uh, something I'm, I'm just starting, actually, for um, uh, photography experts. I'm going to be running some online courses, uh, online workshops on um, landscape photography and, um, and fungi photography in a few weeks' time. So they haven't actually started yet. Um, mm-hmm. I think uh, the two landscape, the two first landscape ones are already fully booked, um, but there's a, a couple of new dates just been released for uh, another landscape one and a fungi workshop. So there we'll be covering as much as I can cover on a, a normal in the field workshop, but in an online environment. So I'll be going through some of the specific techniques, um, focus stacking and how I control high contrast exposure in a landscape scene by blending exp- exposures. So like live Lightroom demonstrations and that sort of thing. Um, and then it's done in a, in a way that uh, we, we have a forum so that people can continuously you know, contact me for advice over the, over the month long period, send in a few mm. pictures for critique and, um, yeah, just generally have access to me while I'm at home. It's been it's good. I mean, you might have felt this as well, just a, a challenge to innovate and try and you have to change things up. Otherwise, it's not going to work. So at least we're creative and we're, we're able to pivot quickly, I think. So we've got that in our favour. Yeah, I mean, during the last lockdown, um, when the restrictions were eased slightly um, and I was able to start doing one-to-one workshops, I started one called Spend the Night in Dorset, mm-hmm. which I'd never done before. So we started at seven o'clock in the evening for sunset then blue hour, then we worked through the night doing astrophotography, then blue mm-hmm. hour, then sunrise. Um, that was a really good use of the, the light at that time of the year in the middle of summer. So uh, now I know that that works so well, I'll include it in my workshop schedule in the future as well. Yeah, that's fantastic. And so people can book a night with you through your website. That's great. They can, so, yes. <laughs> so where can people go to connect with you and support your work, find out more about what you do? Uh, the best way to follow my recent work is is on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. I try to post a new image every day on there. Um, my you know, website has uh, 
articles on photography and uh, I'll try to keep it up to date as much as possible but it's really there for the keeping the workshop side of things up to date so if you're interested in workshops then that's the place to look great I'll put the link in the show notes for all of those things and I'm going to thank you Guy for your time and your input it's really really interesting to hear about your travels your work in Costa Rica the frogs the mushrooms Um, I've enjoyed every minute of it thanks so much thank you Graham thank you so much for listening I hope you had a few takeaways from this episode follow Guy on Instagram a link and links to Guy's upcoming online classes and everything else we spoke about are in the show notes if you like this episode then you can check out my chats with David Merrin that's season 2 episode 4 or Magnus Lindbaum season 2 episode 1 I think you'll enjoy those chats as well don't forget to buy your ticket for an evening with Mark McCall enjoy your photography Be kind and I'll see you out there.